Hi there, everybody. My name is Scott Grayson, and you're listening to Mentally Unscripted, the podcast where my co-host Stefan and I inspire you to think more clearly and have better conversations about the world. When you ride along with us, we'll take you on a journey that will show you there's always more than one way to look at an issue. You'll learn to think critically about what you see and hear and how to challenge the narratives those in power want you to believe. You won't always agree with us, but that's the point to learn that we can have deep conversations and learn from each other, no matter how different we are. This week, we wade back into current events to talk about the war between Russia and Ukraine. But, unlike seemingly everyone on social media, we aren't here to tell you what to think. Instead, we give you some tools to analyze the deluge of information and reach your own honest conclusion. Is Putin a madman, hellbent on nuking the world? Or is Ukraine's friendliness towards the West threatening Russia's security? After listening to this episode, you won't need a bunch of twittiots to tell you what to think. You'll learn to use models such as probabilistic thinking, circle of competence, and reversibility to decide for yourself. As always, we're building a community around Mentally Unscripted. So, please share this episode with your friends and interact with us at mentallyunscripted.com. And remember... The conclusion you reach is less important than the process you follow to get there. All right. We're live. We're back. It's another episode of Mentally Unscripted with Stefan. And Scott is here bringing his his madness. Scott, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm, I'm living the dream. You know, yesterday for all the listeners, we uh, Scott and I were talking. Uh, he saw a video of me and I look like a babushka, which I think is going to be relevant to the conversation later today. But um, I was totally wrapped up. I'm in my basement. And here's the irony. So I'm in Montana right now. Just a few weeks ago, it was like negative 20 degrees and somehow I was warmer. And yesterday it was like 50 degrees and I was freezing. It was absolutely freezing. Um, and I guess it has to do with the rain. Today it's, it's, it's rain. I'm, I'm not quite as cold. Do I, do I look more comfortable, Scott? Do I look like I could live without being wrapped up in a, you know, I, I don't know, some kind of blanket that came from uh, the skin of, of some massive animal? <laughs> you, you do. You look like your wife let you turn on the furnace this morning. She, she did. She did. I, I had to ask nicely, though. <laughs> yeah. It's, and it's weird because down here in Denver, I'm wearing shorts again today. Um, it's, it's not exactly warm or it's not exactly hot, but it's warm, comfortable. Okay. Well, for all those who want to know, are you the kind of guy that wears shorts in the wintertime and says, hell no, I'm never going to put on pants? No, I'm not that kind of guy. <laughs> okay. But I did go to college with someone who was like that. Um, I went to college at Florida State, which is Tallahassee, North Florida. So it didn't really get that cold, but we had, you know, a month or so out of the year, it would get pretty frigid. And there was yeah. a guy in my dorm who did that. He would walk out in his big puffy winter jacket with shorts on. And so I always thought that was kind of, kind of odd, but hey, I, it worked for him. So, well, I, I just mentioned the negative 20 degrees that we have here. And we, we live near a, um, a school, a high school. And I saw kids. Uh, this is no exaggeration. I saw at least two kids in shorts and t-shirts when it was negative 20 degrees outside walking. Now, granted, they were walking from the school to a car, but I'm just like, this is insanity. And I'm wondering, you know, when I was their age, when I was, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17, was I that way? Was I, was I that, or do you just burn so hot at a young age that you don't care? You, you feel like you're a son. Well, I think it's because they're raised in Montana. I mean, they're just Montana tough. They don't, they they're don't just, care. <laughs> yeah. Just out there Montana tough. I, I think you're right. I think, I think there's something in the water out here. Um, especially if you're raised here, you just, you just become a wolf, uh, you know, an absolute, absolute beast of a man yeah. or a woman, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I was raised in Florida, and so <laughs> when it gets below about seventy, I'm like, "Holy crap, it is cold. holy crap!" Yeah, or where, or where you lose the sun, right? You don't know what to do, right? Yeah, 
Oh, man. Well, uh, should we get going on today's topic? Yeah, let's get this knocked out. It's going to be a fun so, one today. Yeah, this is an uplifting one. Um, Scott and I were talking offline. What should we talk about? We, we've got, there's always a whole, um, you know, backlog of things that we could talk about where we're, we're taking these mentally, uh, mental models and different ways of thinking, communication. But uh, given what has happened in just the last few weeks with what happened in Russia and the Ukraine, we decided to have a conversation uh, about mental models in what I guess you could call the fog of war or the conflict zone, uh, the spin zone, the propaganda zone, all, all of that. And uh, and so I, I guess before I, I kick this off and talk through a couple of ideas, uh, we, we haven't really prepared. You know, Sometimes we do a lot more research. Other times we're taking more of um, the mental models that we use on a regular basis and try and apply them to create a better sense of what's going on and a better way of communicating uh, what we understand to be true. And um, I think with this one, uh, what I I would say is we're, we're taking a lot of that knowledge, you know, the mental models, and I think we should also be clear um, on, a, on a few points. Uh, I hate war. I have for a very long time. Uh, conflict is awful. I think, um, I don't know how many times, but maybe 99% of the time, uh, it's just civilians getting killed by some crazy people that are in power. Uh, I don't know the truth of what's happening on the ground in the Ukraine, uh, but it's clear to me that uh, civilians are going to die, maybe in great numbers, and that's a terrible thing. Um, it's also true that there's a lot of fog in war, and I think we'll we'll talk a little bit about that uh, because there, there's uh, there's incentive structures that are at play whenever there's conflict, and um, and particularly when it's conflict uh, that you're not really aware of either the the history. Uh, the existing incentive structures, it becomes that much more confusing. So what we're doing today is to not, if you hear any criticism, uh, I would ask you just to pause for a minute if you're frustrated or angered uh, one way or the other and realize what we're trying to do here is is to think about how as, as a person that's sitting on the sidelines can think about what's going on, uh, be clear-headed at a time of conflict and to uh, hopefully uh, just be thinking better as tensions rise, uh, because as far as I can tell, I don't think the tensions are going to be going away anytime soon. So uh, I don't know, Scott, do you think I gave that justice or did I under or overplay it? No, I think you nailed it. Um, I, I think the problem is, is that no one really knows what's going on over there. All these talking heads on Twitter, no, talking heads, typing heads, whatever, on Twitter who are running their mouths. I don't mm-hmm. think they understand the whole situation. I don't understand the whole situation. And frankly, I'm not sure if anyone really does, you know, outside of the 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 people at the top of the power structures in the various countries, they might have a grasp of what's going on, but they may not even know completely uh, the ins and outs of what's going on. And this is one of the things that we rail against. And one of the reasons why we started this podcast is that people just, they assume that they know more than they do and that they can start forming opinions about things without uh, taking the time to understand really what's going on. So that's, I know that's one area I'm going to look at or discuss a lot today. And, uh, you know, and the other thing, probably, I don't want to speak for you, but probably no shock here is I'm not going to blindly come down on the side of Ukraine here. I mean, I'm not going, I'm not planning on picking sides, but, uh, from what I understand, I mean, there, there's certainly issues going both directions that led to this conflict. Um, and they, they need to be looked at and given equal weighting. And so, uh, yeah, yeah. So I guess that's for yeah. that's I guess that's my position before we get too deep into the conversation. So just to give people a heads up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's so let's rewind a couple of weeks ago 
um, because I, I think this goes into a notion of your heuristics and how do you think about the world and how do you how do you have shortcuts so that you're not overwhelmed by information. So with regards to international relations, which as you just said is is a massively complex topic, even people that are historians that have a very deep understanding of the history of a region, the existing power structures, they can sometimes and oftentimes miss. Uh, misunderstand the situation, but they're but they're also a great way of interpreting the information. So, what is what does that mean for the way in which I'm looking at the world? Where my heuristic is, I I, I follow some people on Twitter. You know, t- talking about one of the potential issues, um, someone like a Matt Taibbi who spent I think a, about a decade reporting in Russia. Um, you know, listening to what they have to say and giving that a, more weight when I'm hearing information from the United States uh, government talking about. Um, the intelligence that they have that that you know Russia is planning an invasion. So I'm I'm hearing that information come in uh, about the intelligence, and then I'm reading that and contrasting that with what I read from Matt Taibbi, uh, who's providing his perspective, which is about the fact that there's uh, you know this is the, the way in which the U.S. government is releasing this information. Uh, the fact that it hasn't given some specifics suggests that maybe they're trying to maybe this is an information war kind of at our, our doorstep. And so that's kind of the way I'm thinking about this going into this. I'm not I'm not spending a lot of time thinking about it, saying, okay, this is actually going to happen. We've had incursions before. We've had uh, an issue with, uh, you know, Russia going into Georgia, taking uh, taking some land, Russia going into the Ukraine and annexing the Crimea. Uh, maybe this is going to be something like that. Whereas, you know, again, our intelligence agencies are, are telling us, no, 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 this is, this is different. This is distinct. So then the invasion actually happens of, of Russia going full tilt into Ukraine, at least with the information I have. And I go, wow, okay, this heuristic happened to be wrong. And um, it, it, it got me thinking a little bit more about how to think through situations like this, uh, at least at this starting point. And it made me think about probabilistic thinking, right? One one of them was you know how do you know when your heuristics are wrong? Uh, also asking yourself is the is the heuristics that you're using um, to shortcut all uh, shortcut all the information that you're pulling in and compiling, where may they have flaws? And what could be those long tail risks that someone like uh, Nassim Taleb talks about? Those those instances you're not quite thinking about. And interestingly, Matt Taibbi wrote a um, a, a short article coming off a of Substack saying, hey. You know, I I was very I came down very hard on the United States government and the information that they were sharing, and I realized that my own biases were so far against intelligence coming from the United States, given all my you know what I've experienced for the last decade, that um, I got this wrong. I called this wrong. So you know, if I think through ways in which I hope that going forward we're all sort of compassionate, forgiving. Um, I, Obviously, now we're in this other weird state, but going into any of these types of situations, when we hear information coming out, just because the United States government has been wrong many times and they have released information many times that's been fraudulent and they do a lot of things that I disagree with, doesn't always mean that they're wrong. And in this case, it's possible that uh, the information they were sharing was accurate. It's possible they may have contributed to maybe some of uh, the way Russia acted, but um I think it also begs into question what Matt Taibbi was saying, which was, you know, I can't just be so biased and assume that it's always going to be one direction or another. So those are a couple of, again, mental models that I kind of had to reevaluate when I saw Russia with the news that that Russia actually had gone further than just the disputed regions in in the Ukraine. So 
when, I don't know. Did you have any thoughts on that? Were you like, you know, going back a couple of weeks ago, were you paying attention to this? Were you not? I really wasn't paying attention to it. And I have to say, I'm not paying a ton of attention to it now. Um, mm-hmm. just because like I said, I'm not trusting a lot of the information that we're getting. Um, but I, I firmly fell into Matt Taibbi's camp there. When I first started hearing talk about this, I just started to dismiss it. I thought it yeah. was political posturing. I thought it was uh, the Biden administration trying, trying to distract from uh, the inflation issues. I also thought that they would they were trying to um, distract from lifting all the a lot of the COVID sanctions and, and requirements. I think they wanted to um, have something to cover for that because they didn't want to have to answer questions about why the science was suddenly changing with COVID. Um, and incidentally, did you see uh, the Babylon Bee article saying that Putin won the Nobel Peace Prize for putting an end to the pandemic? <laughs> oh my gosh. So I thought that was pretty funny. Oh. Um, but yeah, really? no, I was firmly in that camp because my heuristic is if I hear something like this coming from the government, I'm going to instantly default to the, I don't believe it. Uh, but the important thing to remember though, is that your heuristic is just a guideline. You have yeah. to, you know, you got to make sure you're open to changing your mind. And so when it did happen, I would, you know, right there, I was like, wow, okay. I called this one wrong. Um, one thing I've wondered though, I haven't heard what little I've paid attention to this. I haven't heard anyone discuss this is how much did the Biden administration's posturing f- push Putin into doing this? Like, was Putin planning on doing this or was it the constant drumbeat from the Biden administration and others um, making comments and were they doing something behind the scenes that mm-hmm. um, that pushed him, pushed Putin to the point where he felt like now was the time that he had to do this if, uh, to protect the uh, the safety and the sovereignty of Russia. You know, I don't mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, so it, it's interesting, right? One of those uh, self-fulfilling prophecies, I guess. If the more you talk about it, the more likely it is it comes true. Yeah. So I did. And well, that's an interesting question for me and one that I doubt we will ever, ever have an answer to. Yeah. And, you know, um, I wanted to touch back on that point you were saying about feeling like there's deflection from uh, the existing administration using a, a global um, conflict to distract from what's going on. So, I mean, if, if you if you extend that out, right, and th- this is where two things can be true at the same time, and this is perhaps one of the complexities that we should all just recognize. Uh, on one hand, you know, I, I think the, the, the thinking was very much my default thinking as well, that why are they drumming this up? Why are they talking about it? And then, um, and then, then this conflict happens, but then you see additional messaging talking about inflation being linked to what's happening in the Ukraine right now, um, where you could you could sit there and say, okay, wait a second, hold on. Uh, I think there's a lot of discussion about inflation coming from energy, uh, which there's already discussions about what, you know, there's been decade long of CapEx uh, underinvestment in carbon intensive uh, energies. There's labor shortages right now. And then we have the supply chain, which could all be potential huge impacts on inflation right now. And somehow now we're hearing it's Russia. I mean, yeah. that, that plays into exactly why we have this heuristic. I'm not saying that we don't need to reevaluate, um, but it, it also seems like, you know, the, the, the Rahm Emanuel concept of never allow a good uh, crisis go to waste, right? It, it, you know, is this, are, they, are they able to dissect at the political level um, this, this horrible conflict that's occurring uh, from their desire to to spin it in such a way uh, that they can benefit them, uh, particularly when uh, I think the the polls will tell you right now that the Democrats 
are looking at a very difficult midterm coming up. Right. Yeah. And well, um, I mean, if, if you need any more information to lead you down the path of the Putin's invasion is causing inflation uh, story, theme, whatever, um, if, if you would need any information or proof that that's maybe questionable, just ask yourself when the inflation started. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, I think conservatively inflation started about six months ago. I think in reality it was earlier than that. Um, yeah. So are you telling me that, <laughs> that the market started building this invasion up, uh, into its prices a year ago, eight months ago, six months ago. And that's, and that's one of the things, like, like you said, this is one of the reasons why we have our heuristics set up the way we do to not trust what we're hearing, but then to also someone like me to sit here and say, well, I'm not paying a ton of attention because I can't trust that the information I'm getting is accurate, whether intentionally inaccurate, whether it's intentionally propaganda to create it, to skew some sort of a, a opinion, a point of view, or whether it's just, you know, um, unintentionally inaccurate. Yeah. You, you know, I'm just, I'm going to ask those questions. So yeah, right. I thought it was incredibly funny when I heard them starting to blame the inflation on, uh, on Putin invading Ukraine. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't believe it, frankly. Um, and, and to me, it, it's, it's a very cynical, I've become very cynical on, on the pol- the politicians and, you know, on this show, I think we've been uh, fairly critical of uh, the existing administration, but to be fair, um, there, there's plenty of criticism to go around. I mean, if if it wasn't this administration, I would expect the next administration to do something rather similar. I'm I'm pretty much cynical across all of these people um, right. because I don't think the incentives there really really give them the um, the right motivation right. to to do what I, and, I think is truthful and honest and, and clear. Yeah, and when you, when you consider all the various groups that are involved here. Right. Mm-hmm. Everyone is going to try to take advantage of the crisis in the way that benefits them. So you could have yeah. one group saying one thing, another group saying another thing, you know, and then the, the incentives across groups differ, too. Um, yeah. So, it, you know, you're just it, it's almost like you're just getting it from all sides. And it's yeah, just this, this wave of information. It's like, how do you parse through all of this and figure out what's true and what's not true? And how do you get a good picture to understand what's going on over there? And yeah. It's like, and I, I wish I had an answer. No, I, I, I do as well. Um, I do as well. Okay. So, you know, I, I think, I think some good thinking, um, and, and maybe some revised thinking going forward, um, about your, your heuristics, understanding what they are, um, then, then there's this other side of it, which is this international relations discussion of context. Uh, you know, there's, there's now all these pundits coming out telling you what to think or not to think about this region. Now, bear in mind, many people, most people are not, they haven't spent a, um, they haven't spent a single brain cell thinking about Ukraine up until the last several months, several weeks, right? So there's, there's oh, space in your mind. There was the whole, is- uh, Trump quid pro quo thing. So there was a little bit of Ukraine a few years oh, ago. Oh, that's right. Okay. Which, yeah. But uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Which, um, which to me uh, is for- hilarious because, you know, just since 2016, we've gone through Trump is a Putin puppet in collusion to Trump quid pro quo Ukraine to back to Trump is a pu- Putin puppet to BLM to January 6th insurgency to COVID. We've gone back to COVID quite a few times and now we're on to Ukraine. I mean, these it's almost so it's just narrative surfing. Narrative it is. surfing. It is. It's almost yeah. like these people, they some of these people out there, they just seem to have a mental illness where they're just going to wherever the 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 
political and the corporate media winds are blowing them at the time. And at some yeah. point, I'm, I'm just like, man, just just stop. <laughs> Get your sanity back, please. So, there, right. there, yeah, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, you there, no, I, I, no, yeah, you're right. I, I, I guess. When I, when I think about um, the discussion on Ukraine, uh, how many people were discussing it in terms of, of a being a region that should be defended or not defended? Um, how many understood the, had, had spent time looking at the history of the, of the region? And it, my, my sense is that most people um, that are being the targets of the, of the current information war, if I'll call it that, um, know le- very little about Ukraine. Um, Perhaps a lot less than what little I know. Perhaps maybe more than what I know. Um, and and as we've already stated, we're no experts in the region, and we we don't have a lot of history other than what we had in school. Um, but here here's here's what I find interesting is that and, and someone someone was commenting on this. Uh, I think it was on Twitter about you know the same people that were telling me exactly how I should how it should survive COVID are now telling me exactly how I should think about the Ukraine situation. And it draws up this concept of, of circle of competence. Yeah. And, and basically within this circle, there's areas that you know very, very well. And then outside that circle, it's almost like this dark area, yeah. right? Yeah. All and, these uh, epidemiologist experts are now suddenly Eastern European <laughs> experts. Yeah, yeah. Right. They're, they're, they're international relations experts. Yeah. Uh, they're experts on energy policy for Europe. They're experts on... Um, on, on, on the history of Ukraine and what it's, you know, what they want versus what Russia wants, uh, NATO expansion, et cetera. And so again, I come back to something that is really stuck on me. And I know we talked about this a couple of episodes ago, just this notion of people, people having an area and a, and a voice to be able to share their opinion, which I'm, I'm, I'm very much for on a personal value level, but then the confusion from the audience thinking that they're, they're listening to someone who's articulate, who um, who's an authority in one place, and they've transferred that authority without asking themselves, do they have the expertise? Has their circle of competence should have moved over? Uh, and you know, I think a great example, if, if this is confusing, would think about how many people were willing to tell you what the right policy was related to uh, to COVID, when in fact it it should have more likely been, it would have been more helpful if we had had um, perhaps many of our scientists, but as well as our economists. Uh, as well as our, our sociologists and our psychologists working together as kind of a, a larger group to debate ideas and policies that could be used uh, for COVID um, and having that debate, but also allowing that your circle of competence isn't, it isn't infinite, right? There are boundaries at which you you lose some of your practical utility in what you know. Uh, and I, I see that today. Um, and, and, you know, something that people need to be asking themselves am I, when I'm listening to somebody uh, are they the right person to, uh, to you know, weigh more heavily on their uh, their opinions? I don't know. I mean, with everything that you're seeing, um, Scott, how do you think through the expertise that you're, you know, I, I put expertise in quotes because it feels like anybody can be an expert. And then, of course, that means it's harder to actually find people whose whose opinions may be more valuable in creating that understanding. Yeah. It reminds me of, I'm going to butcher this, but Charlie Munger had a mental model that was something along the lines of, when you know the other side's position better than the other side, that's when you can have an opinion. Um, Mm. And I'm thinking about that a lot here. There's a lot of opinions that are not backed up by what I think is logic, reasonableness, or even um, 
accurate information or an, enough accurate information. Uh, a lot of people, they just seem to be, you know, they're, they're just, they're walking around looking for a place to plug in their umbilical cord and Putin invades Ukraine. They, you know, they plug it in, they download the orders from CNN or whoever, and then they just start parroting, um, these talking points, or I don't really like the word talking points or phrase talking points, but yeah, they just start parroting this narrative um, without without understanding any of it. And have you heard something that what little I've followed this, I have not seen in the mainstream media or anything, but it, you know, there's a lot of talk about um, the ethnicity of the people in Donbass and um, Crimea um, being more aligned with uh, with the Russians than with the Ukrainians. But there's a big religious component to this too mm. that seems to just be getting completely ignored, um, and it's and it's a basically a division in the Eastern Orthodox or I guess Russian Orthodox Church between Ukraine and Russia. Um, mm. Have you heard? about that because it's it's amazing I, to me that is this is yeah. just getting ignored. Yeah, I I actually haven't um and it it seems you actually it's a really strong hint that you just noted. If you think about what we talk about Serbia, uh when we've talked about what happened in Africa, d- different genocides, we call them genocides because they're going after certain religious sects or certain ethnicities or or um or races and that's usually brought up as another element to the discussion and uh, for better or worse, it's used to describe a worse offense, right? This notion that we're going and 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 I think it it's a surviving uh, bias from World War II with the atrocities of Hitler going after the the Jewish populations as well as the other minorities. This notion that that has reached the apex of evil. Uh, the fact that it's not being brought up here is an excellent, interesting question. If it it is in fact a a distinction. Yeah, exactly, and. Um, what I, yeah, and I wasn't trying to like get into any detailed conversation about yeah. it, but I just wanted to bring that up as an example of I think pertinent information that seems to not be getting incorporated into uh, the judgments that people are making. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not saying like any of this justifies the invasion or yeah. the killing of anyone. I'm just saying it's just another element that you should take into account when you're trying to yeah. uh, reason through this and come up to, you know, come, come to some conclusion that makes you feel comfortable. Yeah. And it's, and it can just be an understanding of uh, what you can and cannot control in terms of the information, as well as your ability to in, uh, influence what's happening on a, on a world stage. Um, I, I shared before sort of my view, which is that um, in all conflict, you have, Men are women of power uh, that wield a that wield a sword that other people have to carry, and those people and the innocents are the ones that have to bear the cost. These uh, leaders do not. Uh, they do have to bear the cost of leadership at some point, but it's um, especially in most of the conflict, not all, uh, but most of the conflict. It's um, it's really just. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know how to put words in it. If, if I think about what's happening in the Ukraine right now, um, but I, compared to other other wars in the past or conflicts of the past, it's you're looking and going, this is not needed. This doesn't have to happen. These are just people that are too hot headed and don't don't realize that. But let's let's talk about propaganda uh, because I feel like this is already a massive element in what we're seeing here. Um, and and I think if if I'm thinking about mental models that people should be aware of, uh, they should they should absolutely know that uh, the information that they're getting, even honest, accurate information, can be used and weaponized to influence your emotions. And it seems pretty clear to me that we're already seeing a lot of the weaponization of information to try and push 
people in the United States with the information that we're getting to have um, a, a view of how do I put this? Um, uh, that's that's very pro one side, right? O- almost to the point of getting us all angry, so that we will accept certain types of measures that are being taken. Um, what would those measures look like? Well, some kind of military action uh, beyond what's already happened. Uh, my understanding as we're recording this, that different states, including the United States, have sent weapons and humanitarian aid to the Ukraine. Um, you know, The latest was that Sweden was giving 500 anti-tank uh, uh, missiles. I think uh, Germany finally lifted its embargo on uh, providing some kind of weapons, but they're not doing other weapons. For example, they're not giving them airplanes. Uh, they're not they're not doing a no fly zone over the Ukraine. Um, so there's there's a series of tactics that they haven't done uh, beyond all the uh, sanctions that they've proposed and are in in the process of uh, implementing. Um, but in in order to do that, right, in order for them to to justify the reprisals that may occur because of that, there there appears to already be some kind of of mission to share propaganda. So in in this case. There's stories about the Ukraine soldiers um, heroically dying on an island and telling the the Russian ship to to go to hell and go f itself, uh, and then that those 13 soldiers died, that they were blown up by the Russians, and then it turns and this was being shared wildly on social media, uh, and then it turns out that those soldiers uh, uh, eventually surrendered, so they weren't actually blown up. Um, which is, you know, I think you could say, well, it's a good thing that the soldiers didn't die, and it's also good that the Russians didn't didn't just annihilate them the way that they clearly could with the ship that they had. Um, but that's one or two or three of other examples that we're seeing, right, about this propaganda. Yeah, I'm thinking the the ghost of Kiev, the uh, the what was it, Miss Ukraine, <laughs> picking up a gun and and fighting to to defend Kiev. Um, mm-hmm. it, it it it's pretty humorous. It, Honestly, I mean, not that I'm yeah. trying to make light of this, but uh, it's just it's humorous how much the, the the stories that are getting thrown out there and then how quickly people just grab onto and write them. And I mean, there certainly seems to be a, um, a, a concerted effort in the West to create a particular narrative that Russia's the big bad bully and Ukraine are the you know nice, peace loving people who are just minding their own business. Um, you know, did you see the Kamala Harris's comments where she said Russia's the big guy next door, you know, yeah. and invaded the little guy and that that makes it yeah. wrong. And I'm thinking like, how many times has the U.S. done that? I mean, are mm-hmm. we are we now, you know, picking and choosing when it's right and wrong? Uh, well, I guess yeah. we've always picked and choose when it's right and wrong. But are, are we yeah, now yeah. saying things that are just obvious contradictions to our past actions and we're just pretending like nothing is amiss here? that it's all legitimate. Right. And so, uh, yeah, I, like I said, I, I find it humorous. Yeah. You know, as humorous as you can find something in a situation like this. Well, um, but I find it sad that people are just, just grabbing onto it and running with it without stopping to think um, about the bigger picture. Right. Well, and so, so a couple of points I want to share here. I, I think it's entirely reasonable for the Ukrainian uh, government and military to be using propaganda as a tool to fight back against Russia. Um, that's that's wartime activity, right? Um, the, 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 the opposite, though, is that in the fog of war, this sort of notion that there's so much confusion, there's so many unknowns that you're willing to do things that, and, and I think this was a, a, a point brought up by Glenn Greenwald, was that you know using that propaganda in the United States or in other parts of Europe to tell people that 
you know, uh, to, to misrepresent what has happened in Russia or in the Ukraine is a dangerous precedent because it allows you to lie for any means that you see that are reasonable. And I think that's, that's the problem that I see with this propaganda campaign. Um, as I said, I, I, I know why the Ukraine is using propaganda. Um, and it, to me, seems entirely reasonable when you're outgunned against a much larger uh, opponent. But um, at the flip side of it, as, as Americans who at some point may be asked to make decisions or to, to take on some kind of cost, uh, and, and we're being, we're being, they're attempting to manipulate us with these images to say, well, this is why we have to go to war. We should be aware of what's happening. Uh, now, and I, I want to be clear about this to anybody who's listening saying, oh, you guys are defending. No. I have many images of you know the the missile strikes, the, the armaments that have gone into cities, into populations of people. It, it's clear to me that Russia is um, it's using tactics that that are that are intended to demoralize the people of the Ukraine to just give up, right? And and uh, which again, you know, if I'm if I'm doing my own campaign, that is a rational activity to do. We have all, you can tell me about all the, uh, the engagement of war and the, the expectations and the Geneva convention. But at the end of the day, um, those are just myths that either I agree with or I don't. And, um, if I think that there's a way in which I can win the war, it's, it's rational for me to go after what I can. So it's, it's, it, it doesn't surprise me at all to hear about some of the civilian casualties uh, and some of the tactics that I've already read about that to me seem uh, to be probably on the nose. And we let's also remember we do have um, we do have examples of the way that the Russian military can just absolutely uh, annihilate towns. They did they did it in, in Syria. They've done it in other areas. I think during the Chechen War, it's not it's not un, it's not as if it isn't without precedent for them. Um, it's possible, and I. I'm wondering if it's more likely that if Ukraine doesn't surrender, that we're going to see entire cities reduced to rubble and ash. Um, and you can sit there and say, well, you're, you're terrible. You're trying to fan the flames of war. No, I'm saying I think that is an actual outcome that could happen. Um, but you know, then again, you, can't, you, you need to be accurate, especially when you're, when you're talking to the American people. Uh, we need accurate reporting here. Um, and so you need to be aware that propaganda is being used even in this very moment, even though there's no war on our territory. Yeah. Well, there's certainly an information war going on. I think that's beyond, yeah. beyond question. Um, I think it's, I think it's interesting. I haven't heard this yet, but there's always the, um, I don't know what you would call it. The, the, the world war two atom bomb excuse, I guess is if we do this now, it'll end the war sooner and save more lives so that on balance, there's an advantage to it. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how much that plays into anything. And I wonder how much of it is, you know, the Russians just being big, big, mean, bad people who are doing these things. Um, yeah. And again, right. I, I have no idea. I don't, I don't know what the situation is over there. I don't know what the thinking is behind using these tactics. Um, I also heard uh, Judge Napolitano on his podcast. He mentioned that the Russians are dropping cluster bombs, which apparently is violation of the, the war legal code the Geneva, convention, yeah, yeah. The Geneva convention. Um, but I don't know, you know, again, it's just something I heard, yeah. and, but I don't know the reasons behind it. And so it's easy for us to sit back and just say, well, 
Putin's awful. He's crazy. He's he's mean. He wants to take over the world. Um, and that's an easy assumption to come to. But there could be just so much that goes into it that you're not aware of. Um, yeah. And and do we know that they're actually dropping cluster bombs? I mean, or is it a bomb that looks like a cluster bomb? I mean, I don't know all the technical details between all these weapons, um, but it we it's certainly easy in the U.S. for uh, journalists and people on Twitter and Instagram and whatever to just jump to conclusions about things yeah. without taking the time to understand all the nuances and the technical details that go into yeah. the, uh, something. Well, and and it's. You know, we talked before about this notion of people that are beyond their sphere of influence um, or their circle of competence. Sorry, uh, speaking out on these these platforms, they have they have megaphones, and people are allowed to listen to them. And this sometimes this is used as a way to say, well, you know, this is how we should silence people. Uh, and this was used to um, during COVID to silence certain voices because you know they're they're not sharing the right messaging. Um, it's it's astonishing to me that Twitter hasn't just silenced the discussion about raising uh, arms against Russia to defend the Ukraine. Um, now, maybe there is an argument in which you could argue, I'm not going to say maybe, there is an argument in which you say, what is the right path here? Okay, What is the right path here for other nations um, defending Ukrainian people? Okay, that's a discussion to be had. But Everyone who's sitting outside that discussion, who lacks the military expertise, supply chain expertise, uh, understanding of the motives, understanding of what may actually be happening, under, understanding what, what could be, you know, as a plausible plan, can, can think about a few things before they say anything. One of them is this idea of reversibility, right? Um, just as in once you blow up a building, it's gone, you have to rebuild it, right? That's, that's different than making a statement and then be able to walk it back, right? Much of the military action is is only moving in one direction, right? Um, and that is, for me, the, the what we should all be asking ourselves from a reversibility standpoint, if anybody's talking about military intervention, um, is how can we walk it back or not? Uh, for example, there was a discussion, I think uh, Bill Ackman, who is a, uh, a billionaire financial um, investor, on Twitter was talking about uh, the possibility of no-fly zone or the fact that we should engage but not be at nuclear. Uh, and this is a legitimate question that we should all ask ourselves. What does that engagement look like? When people are talking about a no-fly zone over the Ukraine, that means that you're sending in um, armaments, you're sending in your own planes to enforce a no-fly zone. And if a plane is shot down, you can't take that back. If that, if that pilot is killed, you can't take that back. And in the fog of war, it's unclear what kind of decisions are made as a reaction to that. Um, we already know that, that humans have an inability to kind of distance themselves from their emotions and their frustration. We know that pride um, is, a, is a massive uh, emotion that you're feeling during points of conflict. And the idea that they feel the need to defend the killing of one soldier um, or one plane could could make the situation infinitely worse. Now, does that mean that you absolutely don't do it? I, it's above my pay grade. I'm saying as a citizen and as someone sitting on the sideline, when someone's yelling at you on social media or when you meet with someone and says, we just got to do something, the first question you could be asking yourselves is, well, what's the, how do we roll this back? And this is one of the reasons you could, you could look at a lot of politicians that want to work with sanctions. Sanctions are something in theory that you can roll back. You can lift them at some point. They don't have the same um, irreversibility 
Now, they can still destroy economies. And that's what we're seeing now in terms of what the the response has been from Western powers against Russia um, is just a whole host of sanctions. But it's it's just not at the same level. Um, so I, I guess, you know, Scott, I know principally we, we, we have many agreements, maybe some disagreements on, on some of, you know, interaction or let's just call it intervention with the United States. But is, is reversibility the only thing that we should be thinking about? Should we be thinking about other concepts or other ways of thinking about some of the actions that people are proposing? Oh, I think definitely there's there's always going to be multiple ways you can approach it. So reversibility is one thing. Um and you have to you have to look at the second order consequences too, because sometimes you know just rolling back in a, a sanction isn't going to be good enough because the sanctions can have pretty pretty horrendous impacts on the people of the of the country that's being sanctioned. And in fact, I mean, the, my understanding is the whole point behind them is to try to make life so miserable and unbearable for the people that they will rise up and try to get rid of their their leaders. Um, so sanctions don't, you know, they don't hurt the people in charge because they've got all the power, they've got all the guns. So they're still going to be able to get their medicine and their, you know, their bagel pizzas and, you know, whatever, you know, whatever else. Uh, it's the people who suffer. So um, I, I think you have to just take that second step there and say, well, I mean, what is the impact of the sanctions? Um, so when you're talking about reversibility, right, you always have to look at that second order impact. Um, the other thing you need to look at is, uh, just, you know, we've touched on this a few times. I'll bring it up again. It's just how reliable is your information? How much bias are you getting in the information that's coming to you? Um, you know, you have to look at, um, I guess I'm thinking just the, the bigger picture, right? Or the opportunity cost, I guess, is the best way to think about it. And, you know, we've talked about opportunity costs on here a lot. The opportunity cost of being involved in Eastern Europe and spending all that money versus, having your focus on what's going on in the U.S. and putting that money to work over here is another thing. Um, and we've, we've already got inflation that is heating up. Do we really need to be printing more money to spend over there? And, and again, right, I understand that there's a humanitarian issue here that we need to balance out. But I just wonder if the people who are making their plans are, um, are thinking about that. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing probably not, but I don't know. And even, you know, even in the MMT world, right. You know, they're, the, the MMT philosophy was, well, you can, you can keep printing money and spending it as long as you don't have inflation, as long as the um, economy has the productive capacity to absorb that money. Well, we've got the inflation. So I think we're even at the point where MMT, you know, it, it, I think we need to start questioning that philosophy or that, that, that economic philosophy. Um, right. So yeah, there's a lot we can look at and I'm not going to say that I think, you know, you need to look at every single one of them, but yeah, you've got to have a model in place. And you, you have to have something that is going to predict not only the immediate outcomes, but the longer term outcomes. I think you need to, it seems like we're getting a lot of people who are, you know, violating the law of the excluded middle here or um, um, false dichotomies, probably a better way to think about it, where there, it, it's, it's an either or situation when the reality is there's a lot of different um, 
different solutions that we could we could try um, yeah or or actions we could take i guess so yeah. um yeah i mean that's a, that's a it's a really good question and again i mean it's a hugely complex situation and i doubt anyone out there has all of the information so you have to always <laughs> yeah. you know if you're going to make a good good decision right you have to always allow for the fact that something's going to come up that you didn't consider that mm-hmm. you didn't know about so, and, and yeah, I know that's not really, it's kind of a non-answer, no. but yeah, there's a lot that you have to consider. Reversibility is definitely at the top of the list. Like, you know, if we do this, can we unring this bell? If we drop yeah. this bomb on, on Hiroshima, right? It's, we're not right. bringing anybody back. You know, once yeah. we let that thing go, it's gone. Um, yeah, so yeah, absolutely. that's definitely a good one. Um, it, yeah. And it, like the, like I said, the other thing I think would just be all the second order impacts, and again, mm-hmm. right when you're trying to anticipate second order impacts, it's not necessarily that easy, but you still have to try to do it. You owe it to yeah. the world to try and do it. Well, I I think you know the final part of this discussion. First of all, I agree with all that. It's it's messy. It uh, there's a lot of analysis that you need to do uh, when you're making these decisions. And to be frank, uh, we defer that to other people that we feel are more competent. Uh, and we have to to some degree, but it's it's not comfortable, especially at such a low trust level as most and many of us have uh, at this time. And and I think it's it's clear to to most people that if you if you reverse who is in the office right now, I feel like you'd still have fifty percent of the country saying I don't trust their decisions. Um, in this case, it you know it just it just happens to be this administration kind of thing. But the the the, the last point that I guess I wanted to bring up was sort of the. The context and the thinking about um, delayed consequences, right? So um, there's a lot of discussion about how did we get here, and perhaps what are some of the reasons that Russia is acting the way it is today. Um, so I'll, I'll I'll piece out a, f- a few things that I think are, are reasonable to to think about. Um, you have the expansion of the of NATO. Which is a military alliance that was formed to really uh, be a counterpoint to the USSR. Uh, the USSR fell apart in 1989, 1990. The, the countries that were part of the USSR went back to being their own their own states, uh, and NATO did not disband. Um, and in fact, it's it's expanded some of its boundaries and, and moved into other countries. And some of the discussion is that NATO was uh, Russia was fearing that NATO would be or the Ukraine would become a NATO country, and therefore they wanted to make sure that that wouldn't be the case because it's it's a threat to their sovereignty. So that is, that is one discussion. And Glenn Greenwald, if you're interested in understanding more about that argument, he's he's shared a lot of information from different military strategists who who talk about that. Um, the, the other point I would look at is that if you look at the energy consumption from the European Union, as they have attempted to uh, make their economy uh, green by moving to, quote unquote, sustainable energy of solar and wind, they've increased their reliance on Russian oil and gas. Um, and this has changed the balance of power in terms of their discussion. And if you look at the sanctions that have been brought to date by the Europeans as well as the United States, they have carve-outs for energy. And in fact, one of the uh, spokesmen for the U.S. Uh, said that the, these particular sanctions are intended to allow the gas to keep on flowing. Uh, but to target other areas of the right. Russian economy, yeah. we're we're going to sanction you as long as it doesn't hurt us. Yeah, um, and so I'm not I'm not going to actually make a a um, to provide my thoughts on um, on what which one of these has a bigger role in play. Are there other elements of perhaps Ukrainian behavior? Uh, 
um, I will say this, both of these are decisions that happened 20 years ago and continue to happen over time, right? Uh, when Now, when you had countries that were adopting and becoming NATO countries, uh, when you had Germany and the rest of Europe not changing their military spending, when you had Germany and the rest of Europe uh, continue to increase their consumption of power every single year without, uh, and then at the same time, reducing their um, nuclear capacity for energy output, you have this, this compounding decisioning and it reaches a tipping point. And so whether or not it's NATO expansion, whether or not it's a balance of power change, whether or not it's, it's something else um, about what Russia's intentions are today, a lot of our decisions take a long time to come to fruition. And so uh, I think today, you know, the, the, the old saying, you know, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. It is the right time to reflect on what policies we need going forward and what they need to be looking like in 20 years. Uh, the energy decisions we're making in this country are going to have that impact in 20 years. They're going to have the impact on our balance of power. And we're already seeing the effects uh, in the United States of a reliance on the CCP um, of China with our manufacturing base being uh, in China. Uh, the balance of power has shifted. And now they, they realize that, they recognize that, and it gives them the opportunity to achieve their means. They're not wrong, just like Russia isn't necessarily, I'm not making a moral judgment, even though I disagree with Russia going into the Ukraine. Um, you, you can argue that, but it doesn't change the reality that you need to accept. Um, so th that, that would be the one last point I would raise for everyone is thinking about interest um, and long-term consequences and ask yourself that you could consider that second order consequences. But I think there's also this other idea of if, if you can't see what those consequences are for 20 years, we have a tough time imagining that we need to be more imaginative. Right. There's always that nexus between the decision and the results that has yeah. to be um, dealt with. And the more remote the result is, the more the person making the decision can try to point the finger at other people. Um, and also, the more remote it is, the the more the person making, making the decision doesn't even have to consider the long-term impact. I'm thinking when Bill Clinton, um, right, if I got this right, it was... H.W. Bush promised we would not expand NATO. And then Clinton, the very next president, decided, nope, we're not going to keep that promise. And he started doing it. Well, how much was he, how much did he even care about what was going to happen 20, 30 years down the road? Mm -hmm. um, and this is another situation where I think the, uh, the, the these elites, the people who are making these decisions, they don't have to be held accountable for what they did because yeah. the Clintons are always going to have their power and their money. They're going to be able to buy their way and use their influence to avoid the negative consequences of whatever decisions they make. Whereas the average person, you know, we have to deal with increasing gas prices and, you know, the, the specter of a draft, which, I mean, you and I were both too old for the draft, but still, right. The specter yeah. of a draft of um, people who had nothing to do with Eastern Europe, with Russia or Ukraine being sent over there to potentially fight and die um, because of these decisions that were made. It's so, it's it's one of the interesting things about our political system. I mean, we've got term limits um, for a president, which you know we view it as being good because then that we think you know that that keeps the authoritarian tendencies out and whatnot. But it does limit their incentive to think long term. So, right. and with Congress, where there's no term limits, I mean, these folks have basically abdicated their responsibilities over the last several decades as far as making laws and trying to hold the president accountable. 
Um, you know, we just saw it with the OSHA vaccine mandates. I mean, that was a law that really Congress probably should have been passing that. That shouldn't have been something that was coming from the executive. But um, Congress is just punting constantly over to the yeah. executive to take care of these things. And so we are seeing a shift from a lot of these these policy decisions and regulations aren't being made by the people that we elected. They're being made by bureaucrats who are unelected, whose names we don't know. And if you believe that a democracy is the greatest thing in the world, that should concern you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I uh, And th- this goes back to this notion of trust and why I am frightened at times, because I, I do believe that we're dealing with a competency crisis when I see how uh, we have so many decisions coming out of bureaucracies and the incentive structures are there that they, if they make mistakes, they don't necessarily have to pay for them. Uh, there's no election process that's going to remove them. And then you have um, them being un, unable to make decisions when it matters most. Uh, you know, when the stakes are high, they're basically still making just incompetent decisions. Yeah. And, and uh, remember, you know, and I, voting the president out isn't going to get rid of these people. No, you'll get not rid at of all. The, you'll get rid of the president. You'll get out of, you'll get rid of his elected officials or not his elected, his appointed officials. But there's yeah. still that layer uh, in the bureaucracy yeah. that persists from administration to administration. Yeah, absolutely. And, and hey, I, I did want to say I, I brought up two points, you know, NATO expansion and energy reliance. I did not mean. Uh, to say that's the only reason why this stuff happens. Um, I do think there's also another bias, in, uh, particularly in the United States, uh, but also all the West that misunderstands cultural differences um, and perspectives. So I was having a conversation with someone the other day talking about saving face. And uh, Americans understand this concept, but not at the, at the core level of what people are willing to do. Um, how far they're willing to go to save that face and the pride. Um, and I, I do think that there's another element here that could that it's possible as an, as an understanding of the, the combat between these two countries uh, and what you may see from, from people uh, that don't share the Western values the same way. Um, that doesn't change, at least in my opinion, the, the view that uh, everything has to be um, met with a hammer. Uh, that's, that's another area that I think is misconstrued. Uh, you said a false dichotomy, this, you know, what, what is people seem to think that the only way that you can ever walk, uh, walk softly and carry a big stick is to have a military that's going to blow the crap out of everybody else. Uh, rather than perhaps that big stick is having the absolute best technology and inspiring other countries to want it, uh, and their desire to, to engage with you because you offer something better. Um, someone may say that's naive, uh, take on the world, but, if you look at everyone's desire for energy, clean water, um, yeah, you may want power, but if you can provide that to your people, uh, that may matter more. Yeah. So I mean, I just I just wanted to raise that because I I could feel someone saying, well, no, you're you're buying into one of these theories or another. It's like, no, I actually I'm purposely not doing that. I'm saying there's there's it's complex. I don't quite know, but I also know what what uh, from what I understand. Um, there's a lot of reasons why maybe something this is happening, and I think it's awful, and I yeah. wish to God it would just stop. Yeah, and I, I think this notion of power, the way we look at it, at least in the West, is childish and almost puritanical and not very intelligent because we look at it as strength of weapons, strength of arms, the ability to impose our will on others. But I wonder if we were to shift the focus of power away from coercion, the ability to force people to do something and look at power as 
coming as something that comes from economic standing. Okay. So that we focus less on fighting wars and building up our militaries and focus more on developing the strongest economies to to compete in the world and have maximize our wealth that way. Mm -hmm. Then, and if all the other countries are doing the same, then I think they would be more hesitant to have armed conflicts with each other um, because that would potentially destroy a section of their economy. Uh, if they're you know going to go to war with a trading partner, right? That doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense. And I mean, what was it Bastiat said? Where where goods cross borders, soldiers don't. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so this this notion that power you know is only through force, I think is I think our our leaders need to I think they need to grow up a little bit. It's like it, it's almost like talking to a child. It's like you know just, no shut up, <laughs> no we're not doing yeah. that. Shut up, go to bed. Well, as an American, you get so bloody frustrated with us um, using our power to do exactly that—to be coercive, to uh, use it to to bludgeon others, uh, rather than than living up to what I think most Americans want as our ideals. Um, you know, with the idea of, of liberty, the idea of being able to pursue your own interests, the idea of of the opportunity to actually create something for yourself, and. To be the you know, the context is to be the the city shining on the, on the hill that everyone wants to go to, and and to give you a sense, I think of why this is so difficult. We're not alone. This is another thing I want to point out. Our our all of our misgivings in terms of um, our foreign incursions from the United States does not justify other ones being just as bad as us. Uh, I. I actually disagree at times with this notion. Well, we can't say anything. No, we need to live up to the ideals. And actually demonstrate that we actually believe in those ideals and stop doing the stuff that we have done in the past um, that has never been within our ideals. Um, going into these countries like Iraq and Afghanistan, um, completely, completely not what we stand for, or what we should stand for. Um, but we're not the only ones that use and wield our power. And, and I've said this before. If you look at what China is doing uh, with the CCP, they have the opportunity to take that mantle away from us because we've been embroiled in in wars for for two decades. Uh, they have the ability to be the city on the uh, on top of the hill, demonstrating to all the rest of the world why their method is is better. And yet, when you look under the covers, you see so much of their tactics are are using their power, uh, their their balance of power with regards to their trade with other countries. Um, as well as the money that they're able to to print, don't even want to get into that conversation to buy off politicians in different parts of the world. So they're not leading by example either. Really, what it is is that the world deserves better. It deserves better from all of us, uh, and we can be better. Uh, we need to hold those elected to account uh, to the degree that we can, and um, and stand up for you know what our ideals are. Uh, and don't we all make mistakes in the past? We we've got a checkered past. Um, I still want to say I still think our ideals are some of the best in the world, and I don't want to live under under somebody else's. So, if anybody wants to understand where I stand, that's it. Yeah, it's far too tempting to just on one side look at the U.S. and say, "Well, you're just as guilty as everybody else," and completely dismiss anything that is is anti-Putin or anti-Russia. But then, you know, on the flip side, you can't you can't you can't do the same thing coming from the opposite direction. You can't say, "Well, the U.S. is this." Um, you know, this 
grand country that's just keeping peace in the world. So we have to um, condemn one side. Like yeah. most things, I imagine that it's, it's somewhere in the middle. I imagine both sides have some culpability here and the rest of the world probably, especially countries like the US and, and Britain and France probably have quite a bit of culpability. Like I don't think for a second that, that our hands aren't in the cookie jar over there you know, or, yeah. you know, or whatever hands are in the pot, helping to stir this up to a, a certain degree. Um, so, and it, right. I think it's po- impossible to figure out just what the accurate mixture is, but I mean, you, you have to be open to the notion that, yeah, both sides probably have some pretty legitimate complaints and both sides are probably causing the problem too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think with that, we'll wrap up this episode. Um, uh, is there anything else, Scott, that you want to you want to share before we wrap up? Nope. Just go out to mentallyunscripted.com and sign up for our email list and get your yeah. wonderful how to never argue again guide. And then <laughs> maybe the, when you're when you're at dinner talking to the the big Putin fan in your family, you know, maybe you guys won't come to blows. Yeah. Yeah. We need we need uh, less division. Uh, we, we know it's a stressful time for those who are paying attention. Um, and there's there's a lot of discussion about, you know, rise to action. We hope you take from this episode a couple of ideas of ways you can think better, think clearer, and communicate with others so that we are making the best decisions possible uh, individually and then uh, supporting uh, as a country and then and then globally. I know it sounds yeah. fanciful, but it's times like these that I, I, I hope that uh, everyone's doing more to be better people and, and trying to be better thinkers. Yeah. yeah, and we all bleed red. We're all Americans. So, I mean, arguing with people over whether you have a Ukrainian flag in your profile pic or not, or, you know, you said something that might be construed as, is supporting Putin. I mean, just get over yourself. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Support people. Uh, we're, we're, we're not the enemies. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks everybody. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Let us know, leave your comments at mentallyunscripted.com until next time. Take care. Later.